When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? He said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbour as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think of the Messiah? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David, by the Spirit, calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David thus calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one was able to give him any answer, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. If you were to ask me who won the AFL Grand Final last night, I can tell you the answer because I looked it up on the ABC website this morning. It was Richmond. And that would be right, because the ABC always tells the truth, and I'm sure those of you who are mad keen fans, if I'd have said it wrong, you would have already reminded me that I had. That would be right. But what if I said, and also, Geelong, they're also the premiers. How can that be? It doesn't make sense. There's only one premiership team. Surely that's the point of the game, is to figure out which one it is. Surely this is the kind of confusion Jesus raises when he answers a simple question with two commandments. Rather than saying, the Lord your God is, is God, and then full stop, he says, oh, and. Well, which one is it? Can't be both, can it? I don't know if you're tired of this ongoing battle between Jesus and the, uh, the authorities. This is pretty much at the end of it, as we heard in the reading. They sort of give up at this point until they come back in the Easter stories. Every week is the same thing, trying to trick Jesus. And they constantly intrigued, confused and antagonised. I think what's going on here is the Pharisees and Jesus have totally different assumptions about the way the world is founded, about the way the world is as a place of being and of existing. If I said to you, I've built a two metre high fence around my yard in order to keep my dog in. If you thought my dog was this, <coughs> you think I... You're nuts. That's overkill. In extreme. But if I think my dog is this, it might make sense. And unless we sit down and say, well, wait a minute. When you say dog, what are you talking about? 
Oh, now I understand. You have a totally different understanding of what a dog is in this context than I do. Now we can actually have a decent conversation because we're not talking like two people who think the other one is crazy. And I think that's part of what's going on here. The Pharisees can't understand Jesus' view of the world and Jesus possibly can't understand or is not interested in theirs. It's as if the Pharisees see the world as an army. And an army is a good thing. It's a, and it's required to do certain things in certain ways. It's, it's a honed tool fit for purpose. It requires no ambiguity. The person who gives the order gives it to someone who's required to obey the order because that's the way it works. And if that doesn't happen, the army can't function. There are clear lines of authority. In fact, if you see people in army uniform, they have got their lines of authority on their bodies to make it absolutely clear which one's the major, which one's the corporal, which one's the private, and so on. Everything needs to be regimented. Everything needs to be organised. My brother, when he joined the army as a 16-year-old, was required every morning to get up and have a shave. Now, he didn't need to shave until he was about 19. But every morning, he and his fellows would get up. He learned that if you don't put a razor blade in the the old-fashioned razors, then he could lather up and wipe it all off. And he he didn't scrape his skin. But he did that every morning. He went through a pile of shaving cream, putting it on and wiping off. Why? Because that's the rules. This is what we do. And everybody has to do it the same way. And it has to be that way, otherwise it won't work. Everything needs to be clear. Everything needs to be documented. Everything needs to be that way. If that's the view of the world, then it would be obvious to ask, okay, what's the order of these things? The, the, the Pharisees had identified about 613 laws within the Jewish worldview. And it would be, make sense, if you've got that many, to put them in order. And that's a clear view of the world. And so it's a simple and straightforward question, just to check out Jesus, who seems to be a little bit on the edge. Which order did he put things in? But I think Jesus sees the world much more like a family. And a family it, it can't be reg- regulated in the same way. Some families have been. And those of us who have had to endure that kind of family didn't do it with a great deal of joy. And I've certainly been aware of people, particularly military families, where the father usually has tried to run the family like it was a military unit. But of course we know those of us who care for children and those of us who have been children, turns out every one of us is different. And every one of us grows in a different way at a different time. And that if you're going to run a family of any meaning and worth and joy for people, everyone has to be accommodated. Everybody has to be thought about and thought about differently. Just as I figured out how to be a child of a five-year-old, my child was seven. And not none of what I knew about being a parent was of any use because I was now a parent of a seven-year-old. And um, a, then it was a 13-year-old and so on. We instituted at one point when my kids were in middle primary school years, family meetings. We'd gotten this idea from somewhere that we would hold meetings and then each one of the four of us, or two kids and two adults, each one of the four of us would chair the meeting at, every, at any one time and call for agenda items. And we kind of got a bit carried away at one point, but you know we wrote it all down and we even took minutes. But it was a way of trying to make sure everybody felt like they were able to participate in decision making. Sometimes the adults had to make decisions that the 
kids didn't like, i.e. we're not going to eat ice cream for uh, every meal for the next week. Um, we might have it once for dessert, you know, those sorts of things. But we tried really hard to negotiate things and to work things through. And it was a mess. And it's still a mess. My kids are adults and some one of them has kids of their own. And it's still we're still trying to work out how to be a family. Because that's what families are. It turns out I'm not the same person I was when I was 30. And they certainly aren't the same as they were when they were three. Now you all know this. But if Jesus is working from this assumption, then the question of which things go in which order doesn't seem to make that much different, make that much sense. It's much more about how do we do this together. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Jesus says. So he kind of indicates that there some things need to be paid attention to. He's basically saying without these two things, all the rest would collapse. You can't have one without the other. In fact, you can't have one without everything. You can't have a family without everybody participating. And those of us who are in families where some people have been estranged from our family, that is a wound that we carry forever. Jesus assumed a kind of such a radical unity of everything that he didn't seem to discriminate. We know that all through the stories. He didn't seem to pay attention at all to the social norms of who should be in and who should be out. It's almost as if no one had given him the rule book to begin with. So he treated prostitutes as if they were as important as religious leaders. And he treated religious leaders as if they were as unimportant as children. No wonder he drove people crazy. For Jesus, it wasn't about a list of laws. In fact, it wasn't that way for most of the people in Jewish culture. Uh, if you've seen this week's um, little newsletter, the, the Clayton, I talked about the difference between law, L-A-W, and law, L-O-R-E. Law is L-O-R-E is the story of who we are. And law is, is if you like, the, the PowerPoint slides. They just give you the highlights, but they tell a whole other story underneath. It's a story about the world as it truly is, and for Jesus that means a radically united world. And we've lived in a world, and we've benefited from a world in our culture, where we have dissected the world into smaller and smaller bits to learn some of the ways that it works. And that's been of extraordinary benefit. Many of us would not be alive were it not for the work of science. Maybe none of us would be if it were not for the work of science dissecting and disseminating and breaking down into smaller and smaller bits until we can discover it. The problem we've got, though, is we think sometimes that's the only way of understanding things. And the things really are atomised and smaller and smaller bits broken down. But we're starting to relearn from indigenous cultures across the world of a radical unity between things. When you listen to indigenous leaders in our country try and talk to us in our language about what it means to be on country. So different, we go to the country, they talk about being on country. And the best, it's the best we can do with English language. But it's somehow some radical interconnection between the individual human being and the land from which they spring. 
and you can hear about it and listen to it and participate and still be a long, long way from understanding the radical interconnection of those things. And you may know indigenous men and women who in the end of their life are desperate to get back to country. They need to die on country. And they, they try and explain that as best they can in the language that they've been given, English, and it doesn't do them very well. But we know there's something really deep going on there. That, in fact, Jesus seems to be on about the same thing. He's not on about dissecting things up, but, but by interconnecting things again. Because what could it possibly mean to love God? What, what can that mean when we say that word? It, it's just a concept, surely. Unless it has some roots and grounding in the world. In fact, there's a whole letter, the first letter of John, that tries to deal with this specific thing. We don't know who the author is. But it says, The person who does not love does not know God, because God is love. There's this radical idea that the love and God are so intertwined that they are the same thing. And whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they've not seen. And I think the reverse of that is true as well. Let's rewrite that. Whoever claims to love his or her brother or sister yet hates God is a liar. For whoever does not love God whom they have not seen cannot love their brother and sister whom they have seen. I think that's because Jesus is saying, if you don't see everyone as radically interconnected to everyone else, if you don't see all of us as manifestations of God, every human being as that, then you're not actually loving at all. You're still dividing the world up into us and them. As we so easily do, there's those in my tribe and there's the others. There's the deserving poor and then there's the rest. There's the deserving refugees and then there's those who've jumped the queue. There's the deserving indigenous people because they look a bit like us and they do things like us. And then there's the rest who, well, what can you do? That's the dividing up that we continue to do and we do it individually amongst ourselves so frequently. But Jesus seems to live in a completely other world where unless we're radically connected to everything, another word for God, unless we're radically connected to, to the unity of the world, something that, that um, Rothko was trying to get at to some degree in these enormous paintings, layer after layer of thin paint, that he built up and built up, trying to get to this bigger, deeper understanding of the interconnectedness of all things. Unless you've got that deep, radical interconnectedness in your head, then when it comes to an individual person who is your neighbour or your partner or a refugee or somebody in America or anywhere, we can't actually connect in the deep way that God is calling us to. A person who does not love does not know God. Reverse that. A person who does not know God, the deep connectedness of all things, cannot love because 
Love is God because God is love. That'll do. No wonder Mark Rothko didn't want to talk about his paintings. He just wanted you to go there where the lights are low, quietly, and experience it. Amen.